0: Colossians 2, 8-10 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Christ, who is the head of all principality and power. In the last episode, we discussed the importance of church history and its role in our re-education. This re-education is, in essence, a reconstruction. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Trevor Areggio, professor of church history at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary at Andrews University, we go in-depth on the development of the Christian church, charting its geographic impact, and how we went from Pentecost to the present. I'm Nicole Dominguez, and you're listening to Faith Reconstructed.
1: I've been teaching church history for a while, and much of church history focuses on the church's development in Europe and America. It's as if the rest of the world doesn't exist. Yet the first 600 years of church history is primarily in Asia and Africa, and they just skimp over that completely. The greatest centers of Christianity was in Asia, and much of church history was around uh, understanding of, of God for ourselves.
0: When we think of church history, our memories often begin with the Reformation. However, to start there would be to walk in on the third act of a four-act play, performed over periods of history and diverse sections of the globe. Dr. Areggio mentions in Mark No's book, Turning Points, Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity, the development of the church happened over four periods. The early church, which was around 31 AD to 604 AD, The medieval church from 604 AD to 1517 AD, which led to the Reformation from 1517 to around 1650, and then the modern church from 1650 to present day. But the true beginning of the Christian movement, then simply called the Way, began at Pentecost.
1: 3,000 people were, were baptized on that day, that marks that tremendous beginning. And then, uh, going further along, uh, AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem is an important turning point because Christianity is going to begin to move away from its Jewish roots. And by the time we get to the end of the 1st century towards the 2nd century, it's going to become primarily a non-Jewish faith. It's going to be embraced primarily by Greek thinkers, uh, Gentile people, and so it's going to change the nature of the religion in in very profound ways. First Christianity was simply seen as a sect of Judaism. They didn't see it as a separate religion, but over time they recognized it as a, a separate, unique faith. And so it was considered illegal for over 300 years, but the turning point was in the year 313 AD, the Edict of Milan, Constantine essentially legalized Christianity. I make a joke about this in my class. I say Christianity went from the outhouse to the White House. It changed the whole nature of Christianity. Up to this point, Christianity was experiencing tremendous persecution by the state. There are 10 major persecutions during this period. But when we get to 313, Christianity is actually going to essentially become the religion of emperors and kings and it's going to change the whole way Christianity is going to operate. In other words, there's going to be a flood of pagan ideas. So there's another shift that's taking place. As as Christianity evolves, it's going to shift from being primarily an Asiatic African religion. Because in the early days of the faith, most of the church fathers were Africans. The greatest centers of Christianity was in Alexandria, in Antioch, in Syria. And later on in Carthage, which is also in Africa. And later on Constantinople. Rome was out on the fringes. Much of Central and Northern Europe was still pagan. That's not gonna happen, their conversion is not gonna happen until much later on. So these early years of Christianity was dominated basically in uh, what we call Northern Africa, Egypt, the, the Horn of Africa, and much of what we now call the Muslim world, Iraq, Iran, Turkey, all of these were major centers of Christianity. This was the heartbeat of Christianity.
0: As you can see, Christianity as a church didn't gain its greatest momentum in Europe, but in the countries and continents Dr. Areggio listed above. Then we enter the medieval age and are introduced to major characters like Augustine, who we mentioned in a previous episode. However, there was one seminal event that changed the course of Christianity entirely, and that was the rise of Islam.
1: The rise of Islam. It's going to sweep across much of the Christian world like a tsunami, overtaking the Holy Land. In fact, 637, I call an important date when they captured Jerusalem. But Egypt, North Africa, all of the major centers of Christianity, Turkey, Iraq, Persia, Iran, all of these places that were major centers of Christianity would eventually fall under the sway of Islam. And so much of Christian culture, its learning, its edifices were basically taken over by the Muslims. In fact, the greatest church in Christianity, built by Justinian, when he built that church, he uttered the words, Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom, Solomon, I have outdone thee. That is now one of the great Muslim mosques in Turkey today. So Christianity is in, the, in Africa and Asia is going to shift to the west and to the north. And as it shifts west and north, it's going to be dominated by the Pope of Rome. And this is where Christianity is in the medieval, towards the end of the medieval age, is going to be dominated by the Bishop of Rome.
0: This is the point where many of our history books begin. This is the rise of the Roman Catholic Church as a powerful institution that would become a major figure in history, both for the good and for the very bad. This is the era of the Christian Church that would later be challenged by reformers like Martin Luther.
1: Any other variety of Christianity was going to be severely persecuted by this monopolistic church, the Roman Catholic Church here. By the time we get to the Reformation, we're in the third period, 1517 is an important day because that's the day on St. Eve's, the Eve of uh, All Saints Day, October 31st, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis. It began a shift. 1521 was when he made the great stand. 1530 was when we have what we call the beginning of Protestantism, when the protest- protesting princes defy the king. And so, uh, essentially, in the, in, the, in the Reformation, we have the fragmentation of Western Christianity.
0: This fragmentation led to two distinct camps Catholicism and Protestantism. However, Protestantism developed four major strands Lutheranism, led by Martin Luther the Reform Movement by John Calvin and Uri Wiley, the Radical Reformation, which sparked the Antibaptists, and finally the English Reformation. So
1: 1648 is an important date because that was when the Catholics and the Protestants signed a treaty called the Treaty of Westphalia, which essentially divided Europe into two distinct religious camps, Catholicism and Protestantism. In other words, Catholicism accepted that Pro- Protestantism was here to stay.
0: This is the beginning of the modern period. This period, Oregio clarifies, isn't identified by dates, but by movements. The modern period doesn't have much to do with the Christian church, but with ideologies that led humanity to separate themselves from the church.
1: So we have the pietism that brought about religious revival all across Europe and America. We have the rise of the Enlightenment which is going to shape the way people think about themselves, about the church. In other words, this is the birth of secularism. The Enlightenment would give birth to secularism, which is very much the dominant ideology of our age. And then, of course, in 1859, uh, a young seminary student by the name of Charles Darwin took a trip to the Galapagos Island When he came back, he wrote this book in 1859, Origin of the Species. This would be an important, what I call, paradigm shift in the way human beings thought about their origins. We have the the beginning of what we call Darwinism or naturalism.
0: Like Areggio mentions, this was an introduction to an important ideology. Important not because it's biblically correct, but important because it spoke to the era, The Enlightenment was an age of science and industry, when the humanities, such as philosophy, literature, and the arts, were starting to become out of vogue and considered antiquated. In addition, Darwinism gave a scientific origin story for those who believed in atheism, which was a worldview that gained traction during and after the French Revolution. These movements must be observed when we track Christian church history because they mark moments when people began to rebel against the institutions of the time and what they had been telling them. They underwent their own deconstruction, however, rather than returning to the scriptures, they rejected all of it. These men and women weren't so much rejecting God as much as they were rejecting religious ideologies. For many in this time. They had never engaged in independent study, but were dependent on reverence, priests, and other religious figures.
1: I'll just give you two other movements that's going to shape modern, the modern church. The rise of liberal Christianity, which was an attempt to adjust to the new knowledge, but they went too far to the left. And then we had the rise of another movement called fundamentalism, which was intended to, to kind of counter the pervasive liberalism that had infiltrated the church, and then we had the rise of another movement called neo-orthodoxy that tried to balance both of these extreme sides of Christianity. And finally, in our days, we have the rise of postmodernism, where people basically are now saying, we don't really believe in objective truth, my truth, your truth. In other words, we are the determining factor in determining what is truth. Now, this process of deconstructing and reconstructing is not easy uh, because all of us have been shaped by the culture that we have been in. So for example, as a child growing up, if you could close your eyes and had a visual picture of what Jesus looked like, what did he look like to you?
0: We know exactly the picture of Jesus that comes to mind. For a long time, it was a slim, tall man Eurocentric features, if a touch androgynous, with soft brown hair that looks suspiciously like a long bob after a blowout, and a spotless white robe with red, blue, or purple sashes across his body. This is the Jesus on church paintings, on pamphlets, in bible illustrations, and in murals for Sabbath school rooms. He is an inoffensive, clean-cut, good citizen Jesus who cuts his lawn, remembers to empty the dishwasher and separates his dirty laundry before putting them in the washing machine.
1: So I, I asked that question because much of Western Christianity has been given to us with a European iconography. God is white, the angels are white, all the biblical uh, characters are white. You, you, you even believe, some people even think that Palestine is in Europe. In fact, we have created a, 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 a specious geographical location called the Middle East, which really technically doesn't exist geographically. Palestine is the bridge between Africa and Asia. It's placed there strategically for a purpose. So I give this as an example because I myself grew up just like you, you know, with pictures of a white Jesus and all of that. But, but, but let, let me just look at two aspects of, of the typical picture of Jesus to show you how, basically, my view of the picture is that it is historically inaccurate and theologically heretical. That's how I describe it. But iconography and pictures are very important in shaping the way people view things. I don't know whether uh, our forebears did this intentionally or they're simply reflecting the larger culture.
0: For some, the physical image of Jesus was never questioned. However, as Dr. Oregio states, the historical inaccuracies have an effect on our full understanding of Christ and the historical impact of his ministry.
1: Number one, we have an individual who's dressed in a beautiful garment. The garment, his clothing, for example, was certainly not the clothing that a first-century Jewish peasant male would wear. That's the garment of an elite. You take a look, just the clothing alone. This is the, the procreators, the governors, the high elite people of society. That's what they wore. Second characteristic, the long hair. Only the Nazarite, men in Israel who took the, the, the vow of a Nazarite wore their hair long on their shoulders. In other words, there is nothing about that picture that represents a first century Jewish peasant male, but it has been passed on to us over the generation as if this indeed is an accurate depiction of Jesus, and nobody questions it. It's as if this is the way it is. And if anyone questions it, you know, you're, you're put aside. I only give you that as an example to show you how the culture has shaped the Christianity or shaped the God after their own image. This is a classic example of how culture corrupts Christianity and makes it something that it's, it's simply a reflection of the people of that culture. And so, because you and I are the inheritors of this type of Christianity, whether it's Protestant or Catholicism, uh, this is what we have inherited. This is what we have been taught. And so, we have to find a way in which we can begin to remove a lot of these images from our minds and begin to think of God or perceive God in new ways, outside of what has been handed down to us.
0: Remember in the first episodes when we deconstructed our image of God? Part of that is deconstructing the physical image of God, starting with Jesus. There's a hymn that goes into how children see our Savior Jesus Christ. Some children see him lily white with tresses soft and fair. Some children see him bronzed and brown with dark and heavy hair. Some children see him almond-eyed, some children see him as dark as they. But in the end of the song, they say how each child will see Jesus looking like them, only with heavenly grace and filled with holy light. Maybe the westernization of Jesus was just the predominant image because that was what they were comfortable with. Maybe it was more nefarious than that. But our image of Jesus must be shaped by his character first and foremost. Us being historically accurate by sharing that a Jewish laborer born in Israel is a more appropriate visual isn't a ploy to be politically correct or to make him quote-unquote relatable for a modern generation of Christians. That would maintain the implication that Jesus' looks take priority. What Jesus looked like isn't what made him valid as a savior but we must also be intentional in our representation.
1: I say to you that this is not an easy task for any of us uh, because we're still in this culture. It still shapes the way we think. But here is where it takes courage. It takes a leap of faith. It takes work effort on our part, in, in, instead of simply accepting what has been delivered to us as truth or as tradition, we as clear-thinking individuals must begin to challenge many of these things and look at them in new ways, study for ourselves, do some research, go back and into the history. This is where history becomes important because what happens is that what we have received presently is not the same history that has been, in other words, there's not a continuous thing that has been handed down to us across generations. This history has been shaped, reshaped, and calibrated according to the individuals who are, handing, are delivering it to us.
0: What Dr. Areggio is describing is reconstruction. Do you remember our episode on relationships with Giselle Ortiz? We mention how addressing generational trauma can be daunting because we are having to discover, confront, and reroute the history of problematic patterns within families. The same can be said for our relationship with Christianity and the church. Looking at history, at the parts that caused institutional damage, we're cleaning up the clutter that has prevented us from seeing the gospel. That clutter can be the belief that we have to do works in order to earn salvation, or the belief that God doesn't want to deal with us unchurched, unscriptured, unholy people so we can leave the study to the professionals. Or perhaps the clutter is that Jesus is Eurocentric goody-two-shoes who wouldn't like me and make me feel guilty for my problems. Part of maturing is taking a critical eye to everything we've been told and applying discernment. It's easy to see misrepresentation in the scriptures and decide to throw it all away, but to do so would be to dismiss crucial answers, and most of all, the love of God.
1: I think the danger that the young faces is that they see so many contradictions, inconsistencies in Christianity that they are tempted to simply reject it completely. And I think the point you're making is important. Instead of seeking an alternative way of looking at it, they reject the whole thing. And this is the danger that secular people are face when they deal with Christianity. So, so making a historical point about, here's a Christianity that projects, as I said, a European god so if you're a slave living in 19th century America, the slave master tells you, listen, uh, this God that I'm telling you, this white God, wants you to be a slave. He wants you to live, he, in fact, he's, he's okay with you being dehumanized, degraded, being punished. Imagine if you're a slave living in 19th century America. Your understanding of God of christianity but this is an example of how perverted christianity had become so that the religion itself becomes an agent in the hands of these slave masters to endorse slavery to endorse the degradation and the inhumanity against other human beings now If you as a slave are thinking of becoming a Christian, you have to ask yourself, boy, what kind of God could this be? What kind of religion is this that could actually endorse and support? And and of course, what they did, is they would go back to the sacred book, their sacred writings, and provide theological proof that slavery was okay. It was endorsed as a young slave living in the South, and I am living in utter terror uh, of my life, beaten, working hard, and I must say to myself, this is my destiny. This is what the God that you're saying wants me to be. You see, this is the kind of distortion uh, or distorted view of God that is presented, Uh, no wonder these slaves had a hard time accepting this kind of God. But I have to say, in all reverence to the slave, what they did is what I am recommending. They took the God of the European and they recalibrated him. They reinterpreted him in the light of their own situation. In in fact, instead of him being a God who endorsed their bondage, they call him a liberating God, a God who frees the oppressed. In other words, they took this distorted, perverted Christianity and they reshaped it. They remade it in the light of their own experience. And in fact, musicologists will tell us the spirituals, the spirituals are one of the only unique musical genre in America that grew out of this this situation of oppression. They took this distorted view of God, and what did they do? They created something new, something so so filled with pathos and emotion that 150 years or 200 years after they they had created this genre of music, when people listened to it, they sense its power. They sense it, its emotion because it's coming from a very deep place of suffering and pain. This is the ability of the Holy Spirit to be able to, to use the, the kind of stuff that we create, the distorted stuff that we create, and sort of reshape it.
0: This is a testament to the power of God. Though Dr. Reggio says they created something new, here's another way to look at it. What these individuals from Africa and the Caribbean did was parse out the real narrative and character of the gospel. They had spotted what their masters had missed or willfully overlooked, which was that God is a liberator and an ally to those unfairly enslaved. Slave masters are a testament to some people's desire to misuse scriptures for it to fit a narrative that serves their own advancement. What they did was ignore the overarching narrative of God's chosen people, who were enslaved, persecuted, and oppressed, but were repeatedly liberated and sustained by God. It would be sugarcoating for us to say that they made the best out of a sticky situation, so we should too. However, Oregio's point is to exalt the resilience of the gospel— and the diversity of its application.
1: Yeah, one church historian put it beautifully, summarizing what you have said. He said that the slaves preserve authentic Christianity in America. Yeah, I I think the, the slaves captured what I call the central story of the Bible. It's the Exodus. You know, just think about it. It's the central story. It's coming out of Egypt into Canaan land. That story really is illustrative of the whole plan of salvation, of the redeeming humankind and bringing them into reconciliation uh, with their creator. And so the slaves, they they were very good. They were not trained theologians, but they captured the very essence of the bible and of the gospel which is in that story and that's the reason why when you listen to all of these spirituals that's a theme liberation the exodus that runs through all of them (laughs) you know because what is it that we are in we are in bondage to sin all of us and what is god's plan for us exodus to take us out of bondage, take us into the heavenly Canaan. This is what it's all about. This, this is the grand, I call it the grand metanarrative, the great story that encompasses the human experience. God's desire to take us out of Egypt into Canaan land. And in that story, they, these slaves, they, they capture it. And that's why in their, their songs and in their writings, it's the central theme.
0: So in light of what we know, how do we keep our image of God correct, despite the periods when God is misrepresented in his own church? That's a
1: good question. Uh, the problem with the history is that when you look at it, we have never been able to do it at any time. So, <laughs> you know, we, we, our distorted view of God causes us to, you know, have distortions in other areas. Again, I am not sure, again, I, I, I think it has to do with, with our fallen human nature. We have a very difficult time of trying to uh, understand or at least have a clear view of God. You know, one of, one of the primary reasons for Jesus to come to the earth was to give us an image of who God is. <laughs> Why? Because it was such a perverted view of him. In fact, it's the devil's plan. That's his plan. His ultimate plan is to give us a... In other words, what the devil does, he projects on God his own characteristics. We're dealing with an adversary who's working incessantly to create this distorted view of God. So that's what we're up against. You know what I'm saying? This battle has never waned. It has always been going on. So we have to be conscious of this cosmic conflict that we're all engaged in. And so I think we have to have a daily surrender to the Spirit, a humility of heart, a willingness to learn from God's Word. You know, this this daily surrender, Lord, I just want you to speak to me today. I want to be open to your will. I want to put aside the distractions. I, I am not trying to carry out my own agenda. I simply want you to take full charge of me. And this is a daily, a daily work. There are so many other mitigating factors that are working against you to keep that distorted view of God and to keep you sidetracked. That if you don't make this daily effort, this daily surrender, becomes almost impossible
0: when we bring the history of the christian church under close inspection we're able to trace the origins of misbeliefs that have been holding us back we have a broader awareness of the church and its impact widening our lens and exploring a re-education of the christian church is liberating i know it seems like a lot i get that There are days when I don't feel like untangling the geopolitical impact of Constantinople's politicization of Christianity. But take it bit by bit. Be patient and build off the miraculous truth of God's character. This reconstruction can be difficult, but it can also lead to really pleasant surprises. Suddenly, our scope of Christianity includes people and cultures that remind us of the powerful love of God. Some resources suggested by Dr. Oregio are How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind, Rediscovering the African Seedbed of Western Christianity by Thomas C. Oden, The Lost History of Christianity by Philip Jenkins, and The Blessing of Africa by Keith Augustus Burton. My own recommendation is Bruce L. Shelley's book, Church History in Plain Language. Shelley does, in my opinion, an amazing job of writing for layman readers, keeping it simple and interesting. In our next episode, Join me and Justin Co. as we sink our teeth into soteriology. In other words, exploring the question, what is salvation and how do we get it? You've been listening to Faith Reconstructed. Each episode is hosted, written, and produced by me, Nicole Dominguez. Edited by Katrina Simbaku. Logo design and social media by Chelsea Ernina. Tech and equipment support by Steve Hussett and James Gigante. Project support by Heather Moore. Special thanks to the North American Division and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening. An Adventist Learning Community Podcast.